Well, good morning, church. Let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 10 this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 15 verses together. I want to read for us. If you don't have your own Bible or one on your phone, there should be a Bible under your chair or your neighbor's chair. I want to encourage you to open up to page 889 in those Bibles and read God's Word as Graham uh, reminded us and prayed. I'm going to read God's Word for us this morning. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Listen. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed. And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Let's bow together one, one more time before we consider the Lord's words for us this morning. Father, as I have prayed much this week and have made it my prayer, uh, I pray again this morning that we as Your people here at the fields and those who have gathered with us this morning would be spurred on by these words this morning, that 
whatever our heart's desire and prayers have been coming into this place, our heart's desire and prayer might be what Paul's heart's desire and prayer were in Romans 10. And that God, whatever plans we had for our life, that our plans might be submitted to your plans, that we too would be sent to preach the good news so that others might hear and believe and call on the name of the Lord and be saved. As we say every week, Father, that we are a people sent out to be the church in the world. May that not, Lord, having said it 11 years, may that not be a phrase on a banner or something that we're used to the pastor saying when we're done. But may that be a reality. May we be a sent people. May we take up that call on our life seriously afresh this morning. In accordance with your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, together as one body, help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 15 ended with Paul saying, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And I, I don't know about you, but I don't think feet are all that beautiful necessarily. I know there are feet models probably, and you know they wear shoes and flip-flops and magazines, this, that, or the other. But obviously, God and Isaiah, whom Paul is quoting, and Paul are not talking about pretty feet, but beautiful feet in another sense. And I want you to imagine for a second, having turned a certain age, and maybe you need a certain test uh, that is recommended at your elderly age, this, that, or the other, or maybe you had some concerns, and so you went to the doctor and had a test done, and you were showing back up to get the results. Maybe a little concerned, maybe a little anxious, unsure. I've been feeling this. I'm not sure what is. As that doctor comes into the room, you are likely going to know what the results of that test were by his steps, by his joyfulness and his greetings and his upliftedness in spirit, he might have good news for you. It, it, no, no, nothing to worry about. It was nothing, nothing showed up. It was all great. You're going to be able to tell. But if that doctor walks in slow-footed, grimacing a bit, sorrowful, head down a little bit, you're probably going to know that something more serious is up. And what a difference how beautiful are the feet of that doctor that brings good news into the room. I was even reminded of this, even this morning, uh, in talking with a friend after writing this out, uh, that that scenario played out in this person's life. And as soon as not just one doctor walked in, but two doctors walked in, they knew. This is not good news. There's a difference between those who carry bad news and those who carry good news. 
And Paul is saying we are to be a people who carry good news. Joyfully, abundantly, um, freely, ready to share that good news with others. Sacrificially even. Paul, Paul ends with feet, but what does he start with? Look back in Romans 10. Brothers, my heart, for out of the overflow of his heart, his feet go. <laughs> That's not how we know the New Testament phrases. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the mouth does speak, but the feet have to go for the mouth to be able to speak to those whom it needs to speak these things to. And so I want to ask you, do you pray? Do you pray for the lost? And I'm not just talking about on Sunday mornings at about 10-10-ish, after we started five minutes late, sang one song, and then prayed for the nations like we do every Sunday. That's good, but are you taking that challenge like we heard from Cheryl to continue praying this week as you think about baseball for the lost in the Baltimore area and for um, uh, Christ Community Church there to proclaim the gospel there? Are you praying for the lost at your school, at your work, on your street, in your family? Or when we send you out every week, are you going as a sent person? Or are you just hearing, okay, now we can stand up, now we can go, now we can start stacking chairs, now we can plan where we're going to go to lunch? Or are you taking those biblical words seriously? I'm a sent person. Who am I sent to this week? What am I sent with this week? When you're sent, are you a, a person who shares that good news? Are you a person who has the good news of the gospel on your lips? Are you proclaiming the hope that you have in the death and the resurrection of Jesus? You see, if our theology from Romans chapter 9, you know that, that deep theology that we've been talking about the past few weeks, if our understanding of who God is from Romans chapter 8, that He is the one who saves and secures our salvation, if our understanding of Romans chapter 9 uh, that says God's Word is not failed, that God is merciful to those whom He wants to be merciful to. That God is not unjust. He's the creator. He's the potter uh, of those things. That God has sent a way of salvation. Jesus Christ, the, the stone of, of Zion. If we understand those things rightly, Paul is saying that our heart will break for the lost. That our heart's desire will be for the lost to be saved. If God is the one who saves, then that is going to be, our, our reaction to that is going to be prayer. Because we can't do it alone. So we're going to ask the Lord to help us in those things. If our theology in Romans chapter 9 causes us to be selfish, silent, and still, then we need Romans 10 to tell us that we ought to pray and to preach and to go 
We have to be a praying people, a proclaiming people, a going people, for those are the fruits of a big God theology. We know we can't save, so we pray. We know that God has chosen us to use us in His plan of salvation, and so we go. We know that going alone is not enough, so we open up our mouths to proclaim this good news of the gospel. Praying and proclaiming and going are some of the surest ways and some of the most helpful ways for you to grow as a Christian and to know you're a Christian. For if we are not praying, if we are not proclaiming, if we are not going, how do we know that we have believed this good news ourselves? This is what we need to consider this morning in Romans chapter 10. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you, most especially this morning, because we as a church need to get this right. We need to not just have a head knowledge of the Lord, but a heart knowledge of the Lord and a heart for the lost. So ask yourselves, do you pray for the lost to be saved? And consider for a second, do you? Do you set aside time to pray for the lost? Do you write down names on our church card, on that Oikos card, to pray for the lost? Remember, Romans chapter 9 started with Paul saying that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for the lost who had rejected Jesus. So much so that he said, I'll give up my place in heaven for them to be saved. Blot me out of your book, O Lord, that their names may be written in it. That's how broken his heart was for the lost. That's how much he understood the grace and forgiveness of God as a good gift that he wanted all of his fellow Jewish uh, nation to understand. Well, Romans chapter 10 starts the same way. Brothers, my heart's desire. Uh, you, could, you could sum that up by saying what Paul cared about most and what his prayer to God was, was that they might be saved. What do you care about most? What you pray about most probably reflects about what you care about most. And Paul is saying that those two go together. His care for the lost is reflected in his prayer for the lost. I want you to think about if all of your prayers from this past week were answered this morning. Would family members be saved? Would co-workers come to faith? Would neighbors be present with you here this morning? Or would your health be better? Would your wealth be better? Would very surface life, temporary life things be changed, but the eternal life of no one changed? If that's true of even some of us, might we consider Paul's challenge in these words this morning and us as a church not remain in that place. 
for if the Lord answered our prayers next week, next Sunday morning, I hope and pray there would be more people in the kingdom of God, more people worshiping here with the people of God. We pray for the nations every Sunday morning because we want to have on our heart what God has on His heart. And that doesn't happen unless we are intentional about it. Intentional until it becomes routine and habit. And I want to challenge you. If that's not a habit, if that's not a routine, if that's not your heart's care and that's not your mouth's prayer, then I want to encourage you to just be intentional and set an alarm on your phone to pray for the lost in your life. To write it on your mirror in dry erase marker. To put a note on your dashboard of your car to pray for the lost. Do something until it is so routine that it's like the first 10 minutes at the Fields Church every single Sunday. You know we're going to pray for the lost. As Graham says, as you know, every single Sunday we pray for the lost. That you would be able to say to somebody else, as you know, I've been praying for you. I've told you I've prayed for you. Be intentional about it. Pray for the lost. But then let's ask ourselves this question. We may not pray for the lost because we may not have a heart's desire or care as much for the lost because we don't realize how lost they are. Do you realize how lost they are? Look at Romans 10, verse 2. Romans chapter 10, verse 2. For I bear them witness. Who's them? Them is the Jews who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Uh, those who have been waiting and anticipating a Messiah, a Savior to come. And Jesus came, and rather than accepting Him, and rather than worshiping Him and believing in Him, they rejected Him. And so Paul is now speaking about them. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That's a good thing. A zeal for God. In fact, Paul describes himself in that same way in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was zealous. He had a zeal. In fact, there was a whole group of people called zealots because of their zeal for the Lord. And yet Paul's saying, but their zeal for God does not save them. Their zeal for God does not save them. For just before Paul said he was zealous, he said this about himself in the verse previous, Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul was zealous, but his zealous, zealousy led to persecution and destroying the church. And the same is true for the Jews. They had rejected Jesus, and out of their zeal, they had rejected Jesus. They had missed him. 
They had stumbled over the stone that God had sent. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to the truth. Verse 3, for being ignorant. Now, I purposely didn't put ignorant in your notes because I didn't want you to go around and think, oh, the lost are ignorant. But guess what? You were ignorant once too. You were ignorant of the things of God and thought you could make your own way and thought that the life that you living wasn't that bad. You, you were ignorant too. They too are ignorant. They were without knowledge. They didn't know. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Do you think that they were ignorant that God was righteous? No. They knew God was holy. They knew God was righteous. Paul's talking about a not the, the righteousness of God as if the holiness of God, but the person of God. They were ignorant of Jesus, who is the righteousness of God. And so, seeking to establish their own righteousness, that is, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They had, they had not seen the Messiah, and so they established their own righteousness. Obey these rules, and we will be righteous before God's eyes. God's going to look down on us and see how great we are, and He's going to prepare a place for us to be with Him forever. But Paul says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You realize how lost they are. They're, Paul is saying these Jews who have rejected Jesus, they're zealous, they're good people, they're righteous, and yet they've missed it. They've missed it. They're trusting in their own works rather than Christ alone who saves. And if this is true of them then, how much more true is it of us now, many, many of the people around us now. You work with, you live around, you have friends, they're good people. They, they're even zealous for the Lord. They may even call themselves Christians or they may be zealous for the Lord of another religion. And they're trying their best and yet they're ignorant of the way the truth and the life. They're ignorant of Jesus alone who is righteous. They may have a zeal, but they're lost. You realize how lost they are. They have their own way of righteousness, their own way of salvation. And yet Christ, Paul says, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He, he goes in verse 5 and he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. And then he alludes to, you don't have quotes around it, you don't maybe have a cross-reference to it, but he alludes to a verse in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, that then is re-quoted throughout the Old Testament multiple different times. 
He alludes to Leviticus 18 verse 5 that says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That the person that does the commandments shall live by them. This is what these Jews knew. That there were these commandments. And if I obey these commandments, I will live. I will be righteous in God's eyes. But it didn't take very long for them to realize, I can't actually do these commandments. I can't actually live out these commandments perfectly. And yet that's what the verse said. He who does these things, does them perfectly, not just every so often, not just for the most part, but he who does these things perfectly will live by them. Will live and not die. Will be able to experience eternal life with God in heaven. And yet no one was able to experience that. Which is why Paul just previously said that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. For Christ alone did them. Jesus alone did all of the commandments of the Old Testament. Jesus alone fulfilled the, the law. Christ not only fulfilled it, but He put an end to it. He put an end to the law. The, the law is no longer the way that we are to be saved. But you might think, well, Matthew 5.17, pastor, says, Jesus said, do not think that I come to abolish the law or to put an end to the law and the prophets. That's exactly what it says. Jesus did say, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And what he was saying there is, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament I came to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus, in fact, though, did come to abolish the laws of the commandments. Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15. By abolishing the law of the commandments commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, Jesus is the end of the law of righteousness because he fulfilled the law of righteousness perfectly. He never sinned. He left heaven, was born of a virgin, so he did not inherit mankind's sinful nature, and then he continued on that sinless track his entire life so that even when he died, yet shall he live. He rose. He rose because he lived in accordance with the commandments. He was God, and he was man, and he was perfect, and yet he died in our place, knowing that because he lived by them, and because God is God, he would also live forever. 
And so we've got to consider this for a second. We've got to consider those around us. If this was true of the Jews, that they were ignorant and yet zealous, we have to realize how lost they are. For zeal does not equal righteousness. We know this to be true in our own lives. Just because we meant good towards the Lord earlier in our life doesn't mean that we deserve to be saved or that we were saved. Just because we attended church perfectly when we were younger, just because you give regularly, just because you try hard doesn't mean that you are saved in the end. We've come to realize that, that we don't deserve God's salvation. Think about those around you. You might define them as good people. They're, they're zealous, and yet they're lost. We were reminded in one of our field training classes this morning of Luke chapter 15, the parable, uh, uh, three parables describing lostness, um, lostness of a coin, lostness of a sheep, lostness of a son. They're lost, far from the, from, from the Lord in one sense, and yet, let me ask you this question, do you realize how near they are? Do you realize how close they are? Have you ever been really lost and yet realized you were actually really close to that place that you were trying to get to? Not because of anything in you, but it just happened to be that way. Well, think about your neighbor, your coworker, your friend. They're lost, and yet they're so near. Not because of their own efforts, but because of the Lord's nearness to them. Paul makes this clear in verses 6 through 13. He, Moses already talked about the righteousness that is based on the law in verse 5, but he goes on to use Moses' words in verse 6 to, to talk about the other side. The righteousness that is based on faith says, and then Moses quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And Deuteronomy chapter 29 and 30 are, are this uh, Moses speaking the words of the covenant that God made with his people after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, just before they were going to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. And I went back and I was reading through these because I think reading through Romans chapter 10 without this context is kind of hard to understand with this back and forth of Paul. It says this, that is to bring Christ up. Uh, says this to bring Christ down. All of these parentheses, at least for me, um, this was helpful. I hope it'd be helpful for you. In this covenant, that God makes with His people. Again, just before going into the promised land, consider a couple verses. Deut Deuteronomy 29.4 But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand 
or eyes to see or ears to hear. Sound like the ignorance of the lost? Sound like your ignorance when you were lost before you saw and heard and repented and believed and called on the name of the Lord? Verse 10 says, You are standing here today, in verse 12, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that He may establish you today as His people, that He may be your God as He promised you, as He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 14, It is not with you alone, that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today. So not just the Jews that were with the people, but any who had put themselves with the Jews that were there that day. And he goes on to say, with whoever is not here with us today. Don't say that the Old Testament doesn't talk about the salvation of the nations and the inclusion of the, the people of God. He goes on in chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed, that's what I want us to focus on, the things that are revealed, that is the Word of God, the commandments of God, they belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. God Moses were highlighting, there's certain things we just are not going to know about God. They're secret things of God. He's God. We're not. But he's made certain things absolutely abundantly clear for us, and that's his word. And we're to follow his word and to obey his word. And God goes on in, in Deuteronomy 30, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Why? so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You see that the Lord did something to them so that they might believe, so that they might love God back. And God said, I will do it, and I'll do it for your children. For this is the commandment that I command you today. In chapter 30, verse 11, he says, It's not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Sound familiar? Neither is it far off. It's not too hard for you. It's not far away from you. And then we have our verses that Paul quotes in Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. It, or the commandment, is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Moses was saying, the Word of God is not far and distant up in heaven and we need someone to travel up there to go and get it from God and to bring it down here because God has come here and He has spoken to us on the mountain and He's given us His words God initiated this. He was the one who came down. His words are not far from us. He goes on in verse 13, Neither is it the commandment beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? 
Not only do we not have to go to heaven to hear what God is saying, we don't have to go far away horizontally around the world to be able to find out what the Lord says. He's made it known to us. And this is what he says in verse 14, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This is why Paul quotes Moses in Romans chapter 10. Look back in Romans chapter 10 in verse 6 where Paul says, but the righteousness based on faith. The righteousness based on faith says this, and then he quotes Moses saying that the way of the Old Testament was the way of faith. Even back then. And it says, and, and Paul's now taking that quote from Deuteronomy 30 that, that Moses was speaking about the commandments. And Paul is now saying and interpreting that verse as saying, this is also true of Christ Jesus. This was true of the Word of God in the Old Testament. And it's also true of Christ who is the Word in the New Testament. Nothing's changed. So he says that the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into the heaven? Or into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? And here he quotes Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Paul is saying God sent Jesus as the fulfillment of the law who died in your place and rose from the dead so that by believing in Him, you might be saved. And he's near. Yes, all of us were lost and far from God in one sense. And yet in another sense, we were very near to him for he had left heaven and come near to us and come to accomplish and to do what we could not do for ourselves and then to offer us life, eternal life through faith in him. And then we have this great statement uh, that we often make mention of as, as Christians and even as pastors in preaching in verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But who was it that said, I will circumcise your heart in your mouth and put my word in your heart and in your mouth. It was the Lord. So here we say that, see that what the Lord put in us is what comes out of us. The Lord gives us a heart to see these things, a mouth to confess these things. These are the fruit of God's salvation in our life. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's how near they are. That's how near the Jews were to being saved. 
They had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and Lord. And yet, all it took for them to be saved was to believe in their heart and to confess Jesus as Lord. That's it. Now, Christian, consider your neighbor, your family member, your co-worker, whom you think is so far from the Lord. They're actually really close. All it takes is a movement of God on their heart to believe these things and to confess these things. This is why Paul says, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved. Yeah, they look far from the Lord, your friends, your family members, your co-workers, but they're actually so close because God has already come near and He is an omnipotent God. What did we just sing about? Zephaniah 3.17. He is mighty to save. He's able to save you. He's able to save your, your friends and family members. He goes on in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, and here he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, which he already quoted in chapter, Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul highlights here at the, at the end that, that they're actually very near to the Lord. And the Lord is very near to them, and He's near all people. Not just the Jews, Paul says, whom my heart breaks for and I'm praying for, but all who would believe, Gentiles included. You, non-Jews, are included in that. There is no distinction. You remember even back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, God said that this is not only true for you, who, uh, you but it's for those who are here with us today and those who are not even with us today but are going to come and be with us in the future. There is no distinction in salvation. Now, Paul has already said that there actually is a distinction between those who try to save themselves by righteousness through works and those who try to save themselves by righteousness through faith. Okay? There is a distinction between that. He's trying to make that abundantly clear. But he's saying, for those who come by faith, there is no distinction. This is why he would go on to say in Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female uh, nor slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. All are one in Christ. 
They're still, still Jews and Gentiles. They're still male and female. They're still slave and free. But they're one in Christ. And by faith, they've been made one in Christ. And so if that's true of God and His salvation, it, also, it has to also be true of our perspective on the world. When we look out to the world, there's not some who deserve it more than others. And there's not some whom we ought to seek out to share with more than others. That whomever the Lord has put into our path, we ought to be willing to share this good news of the gospel with them. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Paul says in verse 13. Here now he's quoting Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Joel writing about the day of the Lord. In the Old Testament, this day of the Lord that was coming one day. Uh, that everyone who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. This verse is not only quoted here by Paul, but it's actually quoted by Peter as well. Just after he and the other apostles had waited in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit to be given to them to go in power and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And just after the Holy Spirit came upon them, uh, all of the apostles were able to begin speaking in foreign languages that they had never studied or practiced or learned before. All of a sudden, God gave them this ability to be able to speak in all of these foreign languages that, um, where they had never even been before from Acts chapter uh, 2. Uh, and you can go back and read in Acts chapter 2 all of the different places uh, of these people who were able to understand this Word of God in their own actual language. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians, Pontians, Asians, Phrygians, Pamphylians, Egyptians, Libyans, Cyrenians, Romans, Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, all of these people. Paul highlights the same thing. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your background, your tax bracket, your voting block. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this was true then and it's also true now. And this has to be our heart. This has to be our vision uh, we have to see the world as God sees it, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For them to believe in the Lord Jesus and they will be saved. Isn't this what Paul told the Philippian jailer and his family? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so this is, this is true. They're lost just as you were and yet they're very near to the Lord as you found out that through repentance and faith, you too would be saved. Let us not forget that. But then Paul transitions in verse 14. And I want us to ask ourselves this question. Will you go? 
Will you go and share the good news of salvation with them? Do you realize how lost they are? Do you realize how close they are? That righteousness by faith will bring about salvation? If so, why would we not? Why would we not go and share? Why would we not open our mouths with this good news of the gospel? And Paul lays out very logical understanding of, of how they're to call on the name of the Lord. For in verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Since that's true, Paul questions and says, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And so there's, you know, two things happening here. There's uh, a belief and a calling. And, And there's actually a false calling that lacks belief that Paul is saying here. And what Paul is also saying is that belief precedes calling. That that there is a belief in who Jesus is and what He's done for you that leads you to call on the name of the Lord. To confess your belief in Him publicly. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed And he goes on to the next step. How are they to believe in Him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? And here we get to that verse that we considered earlier. As it is written, and this time he quotes from Isaiah 52 verse 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You see the logical progression here. If no one is sent, then no one preaches. And if no one is preaching, then no one hears. And if no one is hearing this good news of the gospel, then no one is believing in their hearts. And if no one's believing in their hearts, then no one is calling out and conf- calling out on the Lord to be saved and confessing their sin and confessing Jesus as Lord. You see, so where would Satan want to stop people from calling on the name of the Lord? The sending. The sending. For if they're not sent, no one's even going to preach. If I can stop them at that step then I've thwarted the entire plan. Which is why that is our reminder every single Sunday. You're sent. For if you are sent, you at least know that you're then to preach. And to preach so that others can hear, so that others can believe, so that others can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Paul understands that that there is a progression here. And he talks and, and, and says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. And like I illustrated earlier about being in a doctor's office and knowing whether or not the doctor would be coming in with good news or bad news, depending upon his maybe even steps down the hallway as they enter into your room and the disposition on his face as he comes in, 
the imagery that Isaiah had in mind before cell phones and Facebook and social media and internet being able to send a message around the world using WhatsApp and Telegram and this, that, or the other, they would send a messenger from the battlefield back to the city to be able to deliver news of, of the war that was going on, the battle that was going on. And Isaiah was writing in a time that he was speaking about the exile that, pe- that the Jews were going to experience in Babylon. And yet there would be good news coming, that there would be freedom, that there would be a release from that. As if they were in the city and could see a messenger far off running towards the city, running with good news, bounding, if you will. They, there's stories in the Old Testament that you can tell that the messenger is bringing good news by the way that they're coming and, and shouting at the top of their uh, lungs the good news. We've won. There is victory. In fact, in our Bible reading plan in, uh, in, in First and Second Samuel, there's a Another use of this good news for the Philistines. The Philistines had actually killed Saul and many of the Israelites, and it said that they sent messengers to their cities with good news. The gospel. That was the gospel for the Philistines. Saul is dead. The king of the Jews is dead. But good news for them temporarily has nothing in comparison to the good news for all mankind spiritually and eternally. How much more so if they were to send messengers throughout all of their regions with news of Saul's death? How much more ought we as Christians to be messengers sent into the world with a message not only of Christ's death, but of his life as well? If they could do that of the death of King Saul, how much more could we do that of of Christ who died and rose from the dead? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. I want you to consider the title of this sermon this morning. Beautiful feet? How, How beautiful are your feet to the lost? If God were to return today and to examine our, uh, our stewardship of our salvation and of, our, uh, and of the gospel of Jesus Christ, would he see that our feet are beautiful in the sight of the lost because we're bringing good news? Or would he see our feet not that way, not that beautiful? For we have kept it to ourselves, or we have not lived sent, we have not proclaimed this gospel. This is so important in the life of a believer that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, as a part of the armor of God, that we should have shoes for our feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is a part of your armor, Christian. 
This is a part of the instruments that the Lord has given you to make him known and to persevere in this life. But if we don't go, then no one will preach, and no one will hear, and no one will call, and no one will be saved. So will you go? Will you go to your neighborhood differently this afternoon? Will you go to lunch differently? Will you go to work tomorrow differently? Will you go to school tomorrow differently? Will you go to practice this week differently? Will you share not just what you've been doing, but what God has done in your life with other people? What you've believed in your heart, you confess with your mouth. I hope that this morning, at this point, that we care for the lost more than we did when we came in here. I hope we realized now how lost they are and yet how close they are to the Lord. I hope that leads us to prayer And I hope that leads us to care more. I realize that I, nor you, nor even this entire church would be able to accomplish this task alone. Which is why we pray. Which is why we work with one another. I know that us as a church can't accomplish this. Which is why we as a church, are supporting other pastors and other churches and praying every Sunday for other churches in our city and around the nation and the world because we all need to live sent like this. And I know that not only we here at this church and other churches around us can accomplish this task, which is why we send our very best from the Fields Church around the world to be missionaries those whom the Lord is calling. And so I want you to consider, we are all commanded to make disciples and to proclaim the Gospels. I want you to consider to whom are you called to do that? None of us have an excuse. We all are commanded to be doing it, but to whom has the Lord called you to do it? Maybe it is your neighborhood. Maybe it is your workplace. Maybe it is your family. Maybe you ought to consider going on a short-term mission trip to help make the gospel known to other people. But I want you to consider, has the Lord called you to lay down your life, uh, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 12, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him, to make this gospel known to those who have yet to hear in a special way. Maybe He's calling you to proclaim the gospel in a more real way by leading a group at school or leading a group at work. Maybe He's calling you even to consider giving up your life to proclaim the Word of God as a, as a pastor or as an elder in the church. Maybe He's calling you to lay down your entire life to be a missionary and to go and to say, like Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. 
I pray and have been praying that the Lord would use this text not only to make us more faithful right here and right now, but to help some of you recognize the Lord's calling on your life to take the gospel to those who have yet to hear. And I don't want to limit the Lord uh, by telling you exactly what that looks like. But might you consider, Lord, and say to the Lord, Lord, what do you want from me? To whom have you sent me? I know I'm sent. To whom have you sent me? And if you have found yourself in this place, like the people of Israel found themselves lost and without hope, uh, far from God, realize the other side of that too. Realize how near the Lord is to you, for He has sent His one and only Son to die for you. And if you simply call on the name of the Lord this morning, you will be saved. That if you believe in your heart that Christ Jesus died for your sins and that He rose from the dead and confess that with your mouth, you can trust that the Lord has begun a work in your heart and that out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth will speak. And you too are now entered into this worldwide mission movement that the Lord has. You now too are responsible for proclaiming this good news as a messenger. You too need to have beautiful feet to be able to share with those who do not know Christ and have yet to be saved. May our hearts desire, may we care more this morning that would lead us to pray more that those around us might be saved. Let's pray. God, break our hearts in this moment for the lost in our life. Break our hearts for those who have yet to repent and believe. God, may we be able to say like Paul that we have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. God, may you grow us in a willingness to give up all of the blessings that you've given to us so that others might know you. Church, I want to give you a moment just to voice a prayer intentionally and to practice even now praying for those whom the Lord has put in your life. When you consider to whom are you sent, as the Lord puts names and faces in your heart and in your mind this morning, would you just take a moment to silently say those names before the Lord and ask for boldness and courage to proclaim the gospel to them this week? Would you do that right now? God, we care and we want to care more. We pray and we want to pray more. We are sent 
and yet we want to live sent more. We've proclaimed, but we want to proclaim the good news more so that more would hear, so that more would would believe, so that more would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. No longer be lost to have turned and found that you are not far from any one of them. Oh God, I pray that you would grow us as a people, as a sent people, and that you would do a work of salvation in the lives of those around us. For your name's sake, for your glory, and for others' salvation. God, have your way in us. Call some to lay down their lives, to proclaim the gospel uh, in the ministry, on the mission field, on a mission trip, at their work, at their school, at their home. God, open our eyes to the lostness of the world, the lack of hope that people have and spur us on in the power of the Holy Spirit as your church to be a light in the world. God, help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and let's sing in closing. Worship and praise to God alone who is God of salvation.